0: It's not through mystical things and stuff like that, but through His Word, His inspired sufficient Word. So join me in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is at the very center of all we do, the exposition of Scripture. So in our study here on Sunday mornings, as we make our way through this great letter by the Apostle Paul to the believers in Thessalonica, we only looked at one verse last week, and we'll only look at one verse this week, but these are very important uh, verses 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 14 Like uh, many pastors I sometimes receive invitations to go speak at other churches that's true of our other pastors here as well if it is for a conference or a retreat then there's likely a theme that they have and that theme influences the choice of passages or topics that I teach However, many times they ask me to speak in the Sunday morning service, and that means I can basically choose whatever I want to preach. That might sound easier, but it's not. It's a hard thing. By this point in my ministry, I'm, what, I'm 105 now, somewhere in there, so a lot of years behind me. At this point in my ministry, I have many sermons to choose from. But here's what I've learned about that. Here's what I've learned along the way. I can always choose a sermon, a passage that addresses the topic of suffering, trials, including how God's people are supposed to respond in times of difficulty. I can always choose that kind of passage because we are always faced with trials. And therefore, we need to be constantly thinking through how does Scripture tell us to respond in a godly way so that we persevere, so that we endure. That is the expectation of God's people. True believers do persevere in their faith all the way to the end of their earthly lives. Now, this is an important topic. So I want to pause here for a moment and address this subject for a moment, especially what I mean by endure and persevere. First of all, by enduring through times of difficulty, I don't mean merely gritting our teeth and forcing ourselves to just keep on going in life. Think about it, even unbelievers can do that. Even unbelievers can come up with strategies or techniques that might result in them just bearing up under difficulty, but that kind of persevering, that kind of enduring may or not be accompanied by joy. In fact, it may even be accompanied by anger and bitterness. No, not that. Christian endurance refers to something more specific. Now... I do want to say this, I'm not saying there is never a moment when we are not just holding on and trying to make it through a day or a trial. But over the long haul, true Christian endurance is more than that. True believers are those who persevere in faith, In other words, we do endure in trusting God, knowing who He is, knowing what Scripture says about Him, knowing that He's wise, He is perfectly good, and that everything He does is what is best for His glory and our good. And by the way, just remember, that is what summarizes everything He does. God does everything, all for the purpose of His own glory and the good of His people. So Christian endurance is just that. It is persevering all the way to the end of earthly life, sustained by our faith in the Lord. And what encourages that kind of faith is not some sort of emotional experience. What encourages that kind of faith is the truth found in Scripture. The Spirit of God is what He does. The Spirit of God takes the truth of God... And uses it to strengthen us than to endure. And yes, there may be moments, likely are, when our faith is greatly tested. But true believers will always uh, land on their feet, as it were. You know. Confessing any doubts that arise. Confessing any pride that surfaces. Confessing any elements of hypocrisy that we find. And then we continually renew our acknowledgement of the truth that we know about God. We continually renew our acknowledgement of His faithfulness always to His promises. So the bottom line is true believers never come to a place of denying Christ or abandoning their commitment to Him. And that first thought relates to the second thought has to do with our security of our salvation. It is true that the Bible really does teach this famous little saying, once saved, always saved. That is very, very true. In other words, once someone is supernaturally regenerated, given new life by God, and then along with that, given the gift of repentance and saving faith, that person will never lose their salvation. That is impossible. However, that little mantra, once saved, always saved, is just not the most satisfactory way of articulating the reality of the security of a believer's salvation. It's because of what people use it for. And I've grown up with this people tend to apply that little idea to someone who has made some sort of superficial decision for Christ. You know, perhaps someone who's prayed a little sort of, some sort of sinner's prayer, or they have signed a card, or they've walked down an aisle, maybe in a regular church service or in a revival service. Maybe they had some sort of emotional experience in some religious crusader meeting. Maybe it was as a child in vacation Bible school. Regardless They made some sort of decision at some point, and yet, this happens to many people, the person walks away from the church, they walk away from living for Christ, they walk away from caring anything about biblical truth, and they live any way they want, and they don't care about repenting from sin, and still, because they made that little decision, some point in their life, people say, well, I mean, they're still saved, because once saved, always saved. The problem with that line of thinking, first of all, is a total misunderstanding of what it means to be a believer, what it means to be saved. It treats coming to Christ for the forgiveness of sin as simply some sort of intellectual decision or some emotional decision that ignores the true work of the Holy Spirit in a sinner's life to give that spiritually dead person new spiritual life. And when the Holy Spirit does that, when the Holy Spirit gives a spiritually dead person spiritual life, it results always in repentance and faith. And that results in a lifelong pursuit of following Christ. The problem with applying the idea of once saved, always saved to anyone who's made any kind of decision to so-called accept Jesus is the problem of neglecting the reality of of spiritual fruit. True believers bring forth fruit. So the fact is, someone who makes a so-called decision for Christ and then lives a life that brings forth no fruit, then biblically, the person was never saved. Somebody might say, well, know I, I just think they lost their salvation. No, that's not possible. They didn't lose their salvation. They never had it. So here's a simple way just to summarize all that I've just said as a matter of introduction here today. We're one, salvation of a sinner doesn't start with the person. Salvation of a sinner starts with God. God, according to His own perfect will, His own sovereign perfect will, causes a sinner to be born again. That's the teaching of Jesus in John chapter 3, the new birth, which is more literally, by the way, in Greek, a birth from above. That happens when God determined for it to happen. To put it differently, someone is born again at the moment God sovereignly causes it to happen, not before that sovereignly determined moment and not after it. And it's a result not of anything a person does. And I've heard that taught that way even in altar calls earlier in my life. Someone saying, you know, come to the front here while the music plays to be born again. No. Being born again is not the result of anything a person does. It's not the result of believing. Certainly not a result of being baptized or joining a church or anything else. It is a sovereign act of God at His sovereignly determined moment, not a moment before, not a moment afterwards. Second, this spiritual act of regeneration, that's the theological term, is accompanied by always the gift of repentance from sin and the gift of saving faith. So that this regenerated person does turn from trusting in self for salvation to trusting in Christ alone. This person does turn from their love affair with the world and sin to a love now for Christ. Faith and repentance go together. They are two sides of a coin. If one is present, so is the other. And both are gracious gifts of God, totally undeserved, totally unsought, totally by grace. Third, this regenerated person who's now alive, who responds to the spiritual work in their heart with faith and repentance, they always will, begins at that moment to follow Christ as the Lord of their life. That means now they are a Christian. They are a believer. They are a disciple. They are a follower. Those are all terms for the same individual. A Christian is a believer, is a disciple, is a follower. And following Christ as the Lord of their life means that that person then spends the rest of their lives seeking to grow in the knowledge of all that it means, seeking to know and to grow in the knowledge of Scripture, seeking to obey what they're learning, seeking to please the Lord with their lives, seeking to confess the many moments of sin and failure. I could put a label on that, that life. You know what it's called? The normal Christian life. And this person continues to follow Christ even through the trials, even through the difficulties, even through the times of suffering. You see, trials are real. Suffering is real. And as we know, it can come in so many forms. I mean, whether it's personal struggles and challenges or financial problems or health challenges or family struggles or persecution from the unbelieving world. That's the Christian life. In fact, I'm mindful of Acts chapter 14 verse 22. It, it says what the apostles were doing there in their ministry. Acts 14:22 says the apostles were strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in faith and saying, "Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God." But those tribulations, those trials do not derail true believers. Trials don't cause cause a true believer to lose their salvation. Regardless of the type of trial, God uses all those times to actually further the growth of the individual, of all his people. So why am I emphasizing all this? Because enduring in faith, persevering in following Christ is evidence of true saving faith. There is a faith that does not save. And there is saving faith, and this is evidence of it, one of them. And that's why a pastor, an elder, is so encouraged and so grateful, even happy even, when he sees believers, the sheep, enduring through suffering. In fact, this is one of two realities that always makes a pastor grateful. When a minister sees people, first of all, loving and obeying the truth of Scripture as the final authority in their lives... He's grateful. And when he sees people enduring in trials, enduring in their faith, he's grateful. And those two are related because it's Scripture that helps believers endure. They're connected. Now, I'm not saying all this because I believe your goal in life should be to make me happy. I'm saying it because it's what 1 Thessalonians 2 is talking about. Especially last week, verse 13, and this verse, verse 14. Last week, we looked at the first half of that whole idea of a pastor's gratitude. In verse 13, we found Paul, the apostle Paul, who ministered alongside Silas and Timothy in Thessalonica as missionaries there, brought the gospel to that city. We find him rejoicing over what he saw in those believers, their obvious commitment to truth, the word of God. That was manifested amongst those believers. Look back at verse 13. It's a landmark verse, as I said last week, so let me read it again. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, another way to describe salvation, which you heard from us, you accepted it, another way to describe salvation, and I told you last week it means to welcome it, to embrace it. You accepted it for what it really is, the word of God, not the word of men which also performs its work in you who believe. It's the inherent power of God's Word. Paul was grateful for that. He, he saw it. He, he, he saw, he knew that they heard the truth, they embraced it, and they began applying it to their lives. And as a result, they brought forth spiritual fruit, which gave evidence that they were truly saved. Well, today we're going to examine verse 14 and the other reality that's so basic but also crucial to a minister's joy and gratitude. These two realities every pastor is grateful for. Number one, last week, the commitment to truth. Number two, today, the testimony of endurance. The testimony of endurance. So here's our bottom line thought for today. God's Word works in a true believer's life, and the one important thing, not the only thing, but one important thing it accomplishes in that work is it strengthens faith, so that he or she, the believer, is enabled to persevere through times of hardship. Now, they had received the word, verse 13 says. So, if you look at verse 14, it begins with that little word, for. That's an inspired word. These words are all inspired by God. Don't skip over them. It's a connecting term. For introduces a reason why the missionaries believed that the word of God was working in their life. That was the end of 13. It performs its work in You who believe for, because, here's why we know that. One verification that God's word was at work in them was that they responded to the trials they were going through and the suffering by enduring. Now, in their case, the suffering was particularly due to persecution. Their stand for Christ and the world persecuting. But the principle we find here applies no matter what type of trial we are in. Now, in the case of the Thessalonians, we know that the missionaries even had taught them to expect this. In other words, from the very beginning of their instruction, they were telling them trials are part of your experience as a follower of Christ. You know how we know that? Well, it's the next chapter, chapter 3, verse 4. If you look over there, look ahead, it's verified there. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 4. When we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we're going to suffer affliction. And it did come to pass. Look back at chapter 1, verse 6 again. It says in 1, verse 6, You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They were imitating In their suffering, in this case, verse 6 says they were imitating the apostles and the Lord himself. That word imitate is not referring to an active imitation. It's not like they they were observing it and going, okay, we need to go do that. No, it's just that they simply were like them in their experience of suffering. The apostles had suffered, Christ had suffered, so these Thessalonians were simply like that. But now, in our verse, Paul adds that the Thessalonians were also like someone else imitating even someone else. Verse 14, for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. The common experience of the churches in this region called Judea was that they suffered for their faith, their stand for Christ. So Paul says to the Thessalonians, you're like them. You're experiencing the same thing. Now, where's Judea? This church in Thessalonica is not part of Judea. Judea is referring in this context to the whole area of Palestine that included certainly the city of Jerusalem and then uh, communities like Caesarea and Capernaum, but it also is including those areas to the north of there, Samaria and Galilee. In that whole region, many churches had been established. And these churches are mentioned like that elsewhere in Scripture as the churches of Judea. Now, Paul is comparing the Thessalonian church to those churches, and yet he could have chosen other regions. Other churches in other regions were also suffering. So why did he choose Judea? Well, it's because the Judean churches were recognized to sort of be the first fruits of the the gospel spreading out from Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 the gospel began in Jerusalem, spread out to the whole region of Judea, and churches were planted. And then, out of those Judean churches, the gospel even began to spread to the Gentile areas. So the Judean churches enjoy sort of a special status among the rest of the Christian churches throughout all the Roman Empire because they were the first fruits of the gospel. And therefore, the churches in Judea sort of became a paradigm then for other churches, especially in the manner of suffering. Now, the suffering that the Judean churches experienced, you find it in Acts chapter 7. I'll tell you when it began. I'll remind you. Acts chapter 7, that all that suffering and persecution began with the martyrdom of Stephen. They stoned Stephen to death. It's interesting. Paul's writing this letter, Right? Paul was very familiar with all that suffering that began with the martyrdom of Stephen. Why? Because he was the ringleader behind it all, known as Saul to people. Listen to Acts chapter 7, verse 59. They went on stoning Stephen. I can think of better ways to die. But they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Doesn't mean he took a nap. He died. Next chapter, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And on that day, that same day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. The people were scattered through all the regions of Judea and Samaria. Verse 3, but Saul... the apostle paul before he was a believer saul began ravaging the church entering house after house and dragging off men and women he would put them in prison it's hard for us to even imagine that about paul right next chapter chapter 9 verse 1 now saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the lord he says later on some things about this as a believer. You know, thinking back on those days, Galatians one verse twenty two. He said, "I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only that they kept hearing quote the man who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy." Word was spreading that that feared Saul had been converted. He was a hater of Christ. He hated the church. He hated believers. And now they're hearing that he's a follower of Christ? I don't know. Paul was saying, Galatians 1, they don't know me by sight yet, which was good for him. He could go there, (laughs) you know, and they wouldn't know him. He says this about himself, 1 Timothy 1, verse 13 I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. But, Acts chapter 9 goes on, he came to Christ that miraculous experience on the road to Damascus where the risen Christ came to Saul and changed his life. And that started a brief period of peace then because Saul was no longer the ringleader of all the persecution. Acts 9, verse 31, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. Being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. You go to chapter 12, though, that peace ended. Herod Antipas was his name, started renewing the persecutions, Acts 12, 1 to 3. Now, about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, in other words, he did that and he's realizing, oh, my, my ratings just went up according to the reports. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now, we know from secular history that around A.D. 48 to 52, there was this uh, procurator of Judea named uh, Ventidius Comanus. That's going to be on the test, so remember that. Ventidius Comanus. Under his leadership around A.D. 48 to 52, another wave of persecution broke out against the Judean church. I'm sure Paul had all this in his mind. You see, all the early believers, not just in Judea, but everywhere, that they knew that persecution was inevitable. 2 Timothy 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So yes, the Judean churches had this history of dealing with severe harassment. But as time progressed especially by the time that 1 Thessalonians was written and these Thessalonians were coming to Christ. By this time, years had passed. Judea had matured. All those churches, there were mature assemblies. They had been refined by all that persecution. And their experience, Paul says, is what I'm seeing in you, the Thessalonians, the same thing. Look at our text again. No Note the, the two ways that the churches in Judea are described, verse 14. And the way they're described here is the description of all true churches today. There are false churches and true churches. First of all, he calls them there the churches of God. Why do he call them that? Well, the word church is just the Greek term ekklesia. It means an assembly. You can have an assembly of anything. You can have pagan assemblies. You can have government assemblies. You can have business assemblies. So to distinguish the group he's talking about from any other kind of assembly, he says, no, the church is the assembly of God. It's a way to say this is the source of these churches. They have their origin in God. And in the New Testament, you find the church described that way many times. Paul told the elders of Ephesus in Acts 20, verse 28, he says, shepherd the church of God, which God purchased with his own blood. It's the church of God. He would address letters that way sometimes, like 1 Corinthians to the church in Corinth. He writes in verse 1 of that letter, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. In Galatians 1.13, he talks about that terrible period of life, and he says, I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. The qualifications of an elder in 1 Timothy 3, verse 5, appropriate for today, at the of the service, we have a quick membership vote on possibly adding another elder to our team of elders. There are qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 of an elder. And One of those, it says this in 1 Timothy 3, 5, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, then the words, how does he instruct his children? How does he confront sin there? How does he lead his own house? If he doesn't know how to do that, how will he take care of the church of God? they're the church of God. Second, he calls them in Christ Jesus. So you could have assemblies of pagans, assemblies of government, all that. You could also have assemblies of Jews. That's a religious assembly. So this part of the description distinguishes the church from Jewish assemblies. The church is called that entity that's in Christ because Christians are said to be in Christ. Christians make up the church. Lots of verses that refer to us that way. That's our identity. Romans eight one says that because what Christ has done for us to save us, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That great verse in Galatians three that unites us all, regardless of our background and who we are, Galatians three twenty eight. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free man, neither male nor female. Not in the church you are all one in Christ Jesus. So this is a common way to refer to the church. They're in Christ Jesus. So true churches, that's who they are. They're of God and they're in Christ because all Christians are in Christ. So see what Paul is doing intentionally here? The churches of Judea are called that and the church in Thessalonica is called that. This is a way for Paul to strategically highlight their unity. He wanted these Thessalonians to look past their issue of suffering and what was going on. He wanted them to see the larger perspective and that they were now part of this larger movement that God is doing. They're not alone in their difficulties even. Their experiencing of suffering was not unique. And how they were like the churches in Judea is clearly spelled out in verse 14. The verse goes on to say, Because you also suffered the same things at the hands of your countrymen, even as they did, the Judean churches did, from the Jews. That persecution in Thessalonica began at the very beginning. When Paul and Silas and Timothy preached the gospel there, it stirred up trouble. Paul went to the synagogue first, and so the persecution started there amongst the Jews, the Jewish community. But then it spilled over to the Gentiles, persecuting the believers as well, even to the point that the city government, the polytarchs, they're called, are persecuting them. You find all that in Acts chapter 17, where it gives the historical setting of all this, that the Jews, it says in Acts 17, were, were jealous over the fact that, that these, these men had, had come into the city and were preaching all of this, and, and some Jews were being saved. So it says in Acts 17, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar. They began dragging some of the believers before the city authorities, saying these people are upsetting the whole world. They're saying that we don't have to obey Caesar. In fact, they're saying that there's another king besides Caesar. They were lying about some of those things, of course. But it says in Acts 17, 8, they stirred up the crowd and, and the city authorities who heard all that. So both Jews and Gentiles contributed to the attack, and that's what's captured in that little word, countrymen. Countrymen is a general word that refers to all those in a a particular locality, regardless of their ethnicity. So again, it was not only the Gentiles but the Jews who continued to oppress the church. In Judea, verse 14 ends by saying that in Judea, it was primarily from the Jews. You've suffered from your countrymen even as they did from the Jews. Those of a Jewish background were threatened by Christianity and the gospel. So they sought to eliminate it. This is just the way it is if God's word is preached, if God's word is received, if it's welcomed and embraced, persecution will result eventually. And it can take several forms. It can take the form of rejection, social rejection. It can take the form of verbal abuse. It can take the form of of, of slandering accusations. It can even progress to physical attacks and martyrdom. There are Christians in our world today, today, being martyred because of their faith in Christ. And all of this was the experience of the Thessalonians. And yet, that's not even the main point. The main point's not that they suffered. It's that little word, endured. That term captures more than just the idea that they were experiencing it. They were experiencing it, but they kept going. They were persevering through it. It is this endurance that is evidence of true saving faith. It is this that is evidence that God's word is working in believers' lives. So therefore, this is something all genuine pastors are grateful for. We are so grateful and encouraged. When we see God's people embracing the truth of Scripture and loving the Word of God. And we are so grateful to see them strengthened by it as they go through their various trials, enduring in faithfulness. These realities are more significant to church leaders, as I've said in the past, more significant than growing in numbers, building new buildings, having successful conferences. I mean, these two realities, this is it. Now, Paul is not the only one who emphasized the importance of God's people persevering in faith through times of difficulty. So did Jesus. Jesus made the same point in his famous parable, known as the parable of the sower, the parable of the seed, the parable of the soils. It's in Matthew chapter 13. So turn with me to Matthew 13 for the second sermon. Of today. And yes, I'm watching the clock. If you know anything about me at all, you know I'm watching the clock. Matthew 13. Let's walk through this parable because if we don't understand this parable, which many don't, we'll come to wrong theological views about the gospel and about perseverance and about security of salvation. In this parable, Matthew 13, The seed is being thrown out by a sower, cast out. It's not the kind of digging a little hole in the ground, you know, with a little shovel thing and putting the seed down in there and getting your organic dirt that you bought at Home Depot and putting it all in there and patting it down and watering it. It's casting the seed out, lots of seed. And in this parable, the seed represents God's Word. And Jesus you can look at verse 4 and following. The seed, the problem is it falls on different kinds of soils. And the soils represent different kinds of hearts. Chapter 13, verse 4. As he sowed the sower, some seeds fell beside the road. In other words, this is the, this is the road. This is the asphalt and the shoulder. It's hard. It's compacted. The seed doesn't take root there. Verse 5. Others fell on rocky places, soil that was full of also rocks. Verse 7, others fell among the thorns. It's soil that has a lot of weeds and thorns growing in it. And finally, the fourth soil, verse 8, and others fell on the good soil. So in the first soil, beside the road, no plant sprung up at all. Birds came along and ate the seed. In the rocky soil and the thorny soil, a plant appeared to spring up, but in each case, the plant didn't last. Only in the fourth soil, the good soil, did the seed truly take root and brought forth fruit. What's the explanation of the parable? Well, Jesus explained it himself later in the chapter. He says the hard, compacted asphalt or the concrete or whatever, the worn down path, hard path, that represents someone who hears the word and they don't care about it at all. I mean, okay, they're not saved. We get it. The rocky soil represents one, a soil that had no depth, and it represents the heart that has no depth to it, the heart that appears to believe, but in reality, since there's no death, the seed doesn't put down roots, so when trials come, which is what it represents there, this person doesn't endure. They stop following Christ. The thorny soil represents a heart that's too full of cares of the world. The rocks represent the cares and the temptations of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the pleasures of the world. This person, the root doesn't really form, and therefore the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word. It becomes unfruitful. The plant disappears. I've heard this taught where those two soils, people try to say, well, they represent true believers. I mean, they did walk down an aisle. They did sign a card. They're they're just, I mean, once saved, always saved. Yes, they've been out in the world for the last 30 years and living as a reprobate, but I was there when they walked down the aisle. They're saved. Or others... They've come up with another errant view, and they've concluded that this is a passage then that would teach that believers can lose their salvation. They had it. They lost it. Well, the reality is that these people in this parable were never saved. It only appeared to be that way for a while. But the fourth soil does represent the hearts of those truly saved. And look at verse 23. Here's what Jesus says about it. Matthew 13, 23, and the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the person who hears the word, understands it like the Thessalonians. This sounds like what Paul said about the Thessalonians who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. And the point is, don't get hung up on the math. He could have said it's some 20 and some 10 and some five. There's at least one orange on the tree. And again true believers you see not only weather the storms that not only face and weather the temptations of life and battle them they keep going and following Christ and they bring forth spiritual fruit not all believers are the same Different individuals bring forth different amounts of fruit by God's design, but all believers do endure to the end, and all believers do bring forth spiritual fruit at some level. Only those who endure under trial, after the Word of God has taken root in their lives, are truly converted and saved. I'll read one more verse in this regard a quote by Jesus back in Matthew 10, verse 22. He tells them there, Matthew 10, you will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved, saved in the final sense of eternal life in heaven. It's not that we endure in order to earn this salvation, we endure because we are saved. So therefore, every genuine pastor is grateful to see those two realities in the lives of the sheep. We're grateful when people receive the truth and grateful when they endure the trials that are sure to come in life. This passage goes on, and whenever we're in this the next time, it moves past the pastor's gratitude to the pastor's grief. Paul expresses that too. Or as one commentator put it, we find here the apostle distinguishing sharply between a people to be glad for and a people to be sad for. That's coming. So let me summarize. This is still part of the message from last week even. What gives the person the conviction to withstand the assault of the world? What gives them the strength to stand in the trials of life and so forth? What gives them the conviction and strength to even stand against Government authorities, if that becomes necessary, it is the word of God because it's God's word and not the word of men. It works mightily in believers. So the basic question that I asked last week about the perspective of scripture is the same today. Is the word given through the apostles and the prophets, not something outside this, is this Is it the Word of man or the Word of God? That's the dividing line. And our ability to stand firm in trials and stand firm against persecution with conviction and courage is going to turn on how we answer that question about Scripture. Let me just leave you with some questions to make it personal, and these are questions by the commentator Richard Phillips. He poses these questions to help us make it all personal. So, here's what he says. Do you endure trusting in Christ even during trials? It's not saying there's never a moment of doubt, never a moment of struggle. Do you endure in trusting in Christ through trials? And when it comes to the trial of persecution in particular, are you willing to endure persecution for your faith, your belief in Christ? Not your conservative social views or your conservative economic views, your testimony for Christ. Are you willing, Phillips writes, are you willing to remain faithful to Christ and live according to his word, even if it means being shunned, ridiculed, or even injured? Are you willing to miss out on worldly pleasures in order to live boldly for Jesus and offer your life for his gospel? In the very depths of the heart of the person who's truly saved, even though they know their weakness, in the depth, true faith answers yes. Luke nine twenty four says this, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he's the one who'll save it. We have our moments of weakness, our moments of doubt, even moments of fear But the answer is to keep confessing those to the Lord, keep pursuing His Word so that it does work mightily in our hearts to strengthen our faith. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this little verse that is the spiritual nudge that we need. We do get caught up in the burdens of the world and the worries of the world and the struggles of that are personal and the battle of the flesh and everything that goes on with living in a fallen world, we do get sidetracked. So, Lord, thanks for the reorientation of our hearts toward our identity, who we are. We are part of the church of God that's in Christ Jesus. Enduring and trusting the Lord in times of difficulty is evidence of saving faith. So, Lord, strengthen us for that because we want to be true to you faithful to you all the way to the end, and we cannot do it in our own strength. Thank you for your forgiveness of our many times of failure if we know Christ. Thank you that in Christ on the cross, all of our moments of doubt and failure and fear were covered by Him so that we can be free to continue seeking to please you. I do pray for anyone here who's deluding themselves maybe, to thinking that because of some intellectual decision or emotional decision or something that, that they've done, that they're following you. Lord, help them to see that it's more than that. But for the one who's weary, the one who's fearful, the one who doubts, and yet in the depths of their being wants to follow Christ, wants to be true, strengthen that one for the battle. In Christ's name, amen.